The Constellation, Episode 16. Cassette Wormhole. Gus is going through some old cassettes. He only has a vague idea of what he's looking for, some sounds recorded in the early 90s. It's more of a feeling that he's after, rather than a concrete sound or event. Some cassettes are from his audio diary, some are from studio sessions. The best thing, thinks Gus, would be to listen acousmatically, to hear sound as a pure, autonomous object free of associations. But for most people, and for Gus especially, it's almost impossible. Every time he hits play, there's a surge of memories. Sometimes indistinct, sometimes incredibly detailed. The memories are multisensorial. People, emotions, places, smells, sights, the weather, the light, the feeling of the ground beneath his feet. Every cassette is a wormhole, a conduit to a parallel universe, where there's a possibility for romance, where the sun shines, where he is still young, good-looking, where he's both confused and excited about the world, about art, music, life the universe and everything. Only the confusion has stayed with him. Hamid is perched on his bed Laptop on his knees. Fahim has been in touch with them again. 
He has interesting information. And he seems to speak with knowledge, with authority. But Hamid doesn't know what to do with the information, doesn't really understand what Fahim wants with him. He'd asked him if he was really ISIS. They're working through us, Fahim had replied. Are you a terrorist? Suflan had asked later. No, I'm just here to assist, to guide. They are with us, came the reply. Hamid has been struggling through the documents. Fahim says that this guy, Frampton, a director at BAE Systems, is responsible for killing civilians in Syria, in the Caliphate. Women and children killed with indiscriminate bombing. Cluster bombs. There's phone footage of explosions, of bodies, photos that make you sick to your stomach, make you want to rise up and fight back. Then there are aerial photographs with cryptic signs, close-up photos of bits of spent munition, copied documents and emails. This isn't Hamid's thing at all. It's too much information. But he understands that these are weapons made in the UK and that there are people in the government involved. This kaffir has received huge bribes to get around export licences and so on. Hamid is quick, clever, but he's a mechanic and an electrician, not an accountant, and he doesn't know how to read all these spreadsheets. Where does it say that, bro? He types. Page 13. Bank statements show that money originated in Syrian account. Too much info, man, types Hamid. Okay, don't worry. I'll mark the important bits. Get back to you. Shit, thinks Naima, logging off. As well as it's heavy trying to stay in character as Fahim, it's an uphill struggle to get the information across. She's convinced herself. Okay, Frampton would be able to argue his way out of it in court, but for disciples of Isis like Hamid and Suflan, it should be pretty convincing. Frampton is also behind the deals that led to atrocities in the Western Sahara and Mahmoud's death in prison. But no one's interested in that conflict anymore, particularly since Donald Trump recognised Morocco's rights to the area at the end of 2020, dashing 30 years of hope for the Polisario. And the Polisario aren't exactly friends of Daesh either. So Naima sticks to the Syrian angle. Frampton has received large amounts of money in bribes to circumvent UK regulations and supply arms directly to the Assad regime. And there's photographic proof that these arms have resulted in civilian casualties in ISIS-controlled areas. Thank you, forensic architecture, she thinks. Of course, Frampton isn't really interested in who is killing who. He's a businessman. And the bribes have probably ended up in pockets 
in Whitehall and Westminster too. But when she'd put it to Soufflan and Hamid that a seemingly respectable and rich UK businessman was making money by helping to kill women and children, basically to kill their relatives, it was pretty convincing. She wants them to see the connections themselves, join the dots. But she knows it's hopeless. They're not used to seeing this kind of stuff at all. Naima is going to have to spend a whole day going through the pages, highlighting and linking it all up. She isn't presenting Frampton as a target yet. She's still hoping that they'll come up with the idea themselves. That they'll start to ask, where does he work? Where does he live? She has all the details at hand. Later, Naima is walking, drifting along the promenade made from huge geometric slabs of concrete. It was built for the Forum of Barcelona. Now, out of season, it's like an abandoned playground for giant children. She goes all the way down to the marina at the end, where you can look along the coast to Badalona and Montgat. Then she turns down towards the water. She loves just sitting here, looking out to sea. It reminds her of a mirror image. Café Hafa in Tangier, where guys sit around staring at Europe, drinking mint tea, eating peanuts and smoking, dreaming of the promised land in the distance. And although she likes just sitting and staring, it's at these moments that she feels the emptiness. She misses Mahmoud so much, misses their long discussions, their days of action, hitching rides across the Sahara with cameras, and their lazy days, lying in bed, listening to the city filtering in from outside, the reverberations of the house, turning the street noise into music. She knows that if he'd been here, they would be arguing. Although he would be proud of her, that she'd got this far in her plans, that she was willing to revenge his death, he would have been shocked at her method. Don't get involved, he always said. Above all, don't incite anything. It's suicide. Naima isn't clear in her head about whether to go through with it. She's not frightened. She's so far away from the action, it isn't even like playing a computer game, 
It's more like correspondence chess. And she likes the intrigue, the fact that she has control over people. But still, she's never killed, not even hurt anyone really. And if it all goes to plan, it would end in at least one fatality. The alternative is the public and legal route, publishing all the information and letting the press and the courts deal with the scandal. She's working on that, of course, in parallel, building up the case, double-checking all the evidence, finding surprising links to politicians she wouldn't suspect. It keeps her mind off the loneliness. She misses her friends from Morocco, Mahmoud's family, who she calls every week, the old friends from Sheffield, who she shadows on the web without making contact. At least she's in touch with some colleagues, other journalists working on similar stuff all over the world, but it's all online. She might as well be back in 2020 in lockdown. On the way back to the city, she sees a guy walking along with a large backpack. As he comes closer, she sees that sticking out of the pack is a complicated 3D camera. He must be gathering data, images for Google Maps or something, the bloody panopticon. Suddenly, she realizes what this means. She has to get out of the way. She squeezes herself behind a lamppost. Of course, they would blur her image on the web. But still, somewhere they must keep the original data. He's not paying attention, just looking at his phone. Anyway, he wouldn't be bothered, thinks Naima. It's just a gig. Not a bad gig, actually. Walking around in the sun with a backpack camera Beats cycling through the stinking traffic, delivering soggy pizza. What the fuck is he doing? Chris, Brian, I mean, thinks Des, sitting in front of his computer, looking at himself on the video. He's supposed to be here for an online policy brainstorm, and Brian has left him staring into the digital mirror again. Sometimes Des wonders why he got into this at all, tracking Brian down, persuading him to come back, to go into politics. He hadn't imagined that it would all be such hard work, He'd thought that all Brian needed to do was to give some speeches and people would be completely in awe of him. But it was more complicated. It wasn't like the church. These people weren't believers yet. 
They had to be taught what was going down, what to believe. And Des sometimes has a sneaky suspicion that Brian doesn't believe half of what he says. What he thinks is great about Brian is how he's managed to steal the environmental debate away from the left. Preservation of the earth goes together with a resistance against the great replacement, against the attacks on family values and for a return to the natural order. He's managed to turn it into something both radically political and spiritual. In a way, it's a bit like that new coalition in the Netherlands, he thinks, but united in one party, behind one man. Hey man, says a voice out of the darkness. Brian Christofferson, it says on the screen. Can't see you, mate. Oh, sorry, wait. Better? says Brian, fading into view. He looks great, thinks Des. You wouldn't guess he was over 60. Hey, we've got to talk about this vaccine truth lot. I know you think we shouldn't target them, that you're worried that Dom is pushing me into something that doesn't fit with our mission. But you know, I don't agree with them either. I never understood how they could demonstrate even riots against the lockdown because it took away their rights and then refused to participate in the vaccine program that was the only thing that was going to give them their rights back. Well, says Des, yeah, they're not exactly uh, consistent. No, not at all. But don't you see that this confusion in itself shows that they're just the people I should be talking to. These are the people who've lost all trust in the political establishment. They can see that the promises of the Tories and Labour were empty. They can feel, although they don't articulate it, that they've been fucked over, tricked into supporting Brexit, and they don't trust the left. These people need an alternative, a British alternative. And Dom's right, they don't really need theology. They need teleology, they need purpose in their lives. They need me, they need us, Des. Okay, okay. You've convinced me. So, let's go ahead with it. You'll address the march on Parliament next weekend, yeah? That means I'll have to get in touch with the organisers. The good thing is, that lot are so active on social that if it goes well, it'll give us tons of free publicity. Yeah, brilliant, Des. I knew you'd come around. But there's still some of them that we have to watch out for. What do you mean? says Des. QAnon. They're still really involved there. You can see it from the placards. Half of them say stuff like, save the children, stop 6G, or AstraZeneca murderers. I'm worried about their involvement, especially, you know, this fixation they have on paedophilia. You know I have to watch out, not to rake up my past. Our past, Des. You're not a pedo, Brian. No one at the NOS was ever involved in anything like that, were they? Uh. No, you're right. But still, anything that points to scandal can make us weaker. Anyway, shit, I've, I've got a meeting with Dom. I'll catch you later, Des. Bye.
At last, Gus finds the tape he was looking for. 1990, an interrail trip. Dave had just come round at the beginning of summer with tickets. Gus, we're going on holiday. It's about time we got out of here. But, says Gus, I was supposed to go with me mum to... I ask you mum already. She thinks it's a great idea. We're leaving next week. But where will we stay? Camping? I've got a big tent. In fact, Dave had had a tip-off about some imminent drug busts, and he'd decided he didn't want to be anywhere nearby when things got hot. Of course, there was always the possibility that his contacts might think that he'd grasped them up, but he thought he'd take the chance. And Gus definitely needed to get out of Sheffield. He'd not really got back on his feet since he'd come out of hospital. They went down the Rhone Valley, reached the Mediterranean at Tset, which seemed to Gus like paradise. Then Narbonne, Perpignan, and on to Barcelona, which was heaving, hot, and a bit too much for Gus. So then they had to decide, would they do Spain, go over to Portugal, or maybe eastwards? They decided on the east. There was a chance that they could meet up with Carl in Venice, He was going to be there, assisting this video artist, Joe Piper. They hadn't seen Carl for three years. Amazingly, the timing worked out. They managed to find the cafe in a quiet labyrinth of streets, away from the crowds. Carl came in with Joe. Gus was impressed, thought she looked like Grace Slick. Carl introduced Gus as a sound artist and Dave as an artist who works with chemicals. Oh, said Joe, like Robert Dayton? They all looked blank. Check him out, said Joe, and then excused herself. She had to meet some curator. Carl took Dave and Gus around some of the pavilions. Gus recorded this in Jenny Holzer's installation. Something went wrong with the recording, but that made it even more interesting. They ended up getting completely drunk with Carl... Joe and a bunch of arty types. Gus woke up the next morning, wrapped in a Persian carpet in a palace overlooking one of the canals. He thought that maybe this was normal in Venice. But the East was calling. Since the fall of the Berlin Wall, a whole new Europe had opened up just over the Adriatic, said Dave. They only needed to jump on the next train. A week later, tired from their adventures, deciphering Cyrillic train timetables, talking in sign language with strangers, hitching lifts, 
They pitched a tent on a hillside in an opening between pine trees. They'd made it all across Yugoslavia, or former Yugoslavia as it was becoming, changes happening in real time. Everyone had been so friendly. They had no idea that a war was brewing just out of sight. They'd crossed Bulgaria, and now they could see the Black Sea glimmering in the distance. In the morning, they'd carry on down to the beach, but now it was too late, too hot, and the air was thick with scent. The air was also full of sound, insects buzzing and chirping all around them. Gus had been recording them ever since the south of France. He couldn't get enough, and his rucksack was filling up with tapes. He'd even thought of posting some home so that he didn't have to lug them around. The evening meal was a bottle of red wine, freshish bread, white cheese and tomatoes that tasted like, well, thought Gus, this is how they're supposed to taste. Sweet and savoury and salty and sharp and everything at once. The sun went down sharply, none of that light hanging around in the sky like at home, and they were suddenly surrounded by a velvety blackness. The insects changed, but they were just as loud. Dave fell asleep quickly. At first, he, being a city boy, would wake at any noise outside the tent. The mice, tiptoeing through the bushes, sounded to him like wild pigs about to charge. But now he'd got used to the countryside, and he was knackered. Gus stayed awake longer, still listening. He could hear Dave breathing shallowly. A bird tooted, echoing through the trees. All around them, crickets, hiss, chirp, fluttered. And in between he could hear something which was like a huge space, like the whole valley was breathing quietly to itself. He quietly unzipped his bag and took out the Walkman. He plugged the microphone in and turned it on, opened the mosquito net a little just so that he could push the microphone outside. He plugged in the headphones and put them on. And it was as if Gus had dived into another world. It's the amplification, but also something about the mic, thought Gus. It abstracts the sound somehow. It makes it more musical. The landscape becomes a concert hall for the insect musicians. An accompanying drone faded in from a distant plane, and Gus started to doze off, happy to know all this was being written onto the cassette.
Then suddenly he woke up with a murmuring, a shuffling in his headphones. He just had time to nudge Dave and then there was a zipping, a tearing, a whooshing sound and the tent seemed to open to the sky. Gus saw the glint of a knife blade and there was an explosion in his head, stars and pain in his stomach and Dave was screaming and the tent was full of army boots and shouting. There was another bang and a clatter and another whoosh and Gus came too, lying on his back, looking up at the stars. The three skinheads running into the trees, laughing and trailing the rags of the tent behind them. Gus looked over at Dave. He was staring up at the sky. They were silent for a long time. Thank you.